Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hi there. This is Richard Franklin, and I play Captain Mike Yates on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Tomorrow, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the old Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the brutish task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a not-at-all-brutish three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level, not-so-brutish, casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's Lordly Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we have our semi-casual and no-longer-brutish fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've read for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alex. Good evening to you. Yes. If you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine that, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, since we know you have so many of them you've taken to storing them in your dank dungeon, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, and Stephen Pickering. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks, y'all. Thank you, and what a list that's become. Yeah, it really has. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. Tonight, we kiss the mayor's foot to bring you our discussion of the first story of Season 11, The Time Warrior. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Time Warrior, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Robert Holmes, that aired from 12, 1573 to 1-5-74, published by Target Books in June 1978. As of this recording in May of 2020, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 142 pages. Kissing the mare's foot apparently is slang from the Middle Ages for we're delaying dinner in order to do this. <laughs> the the okay. mayor, M-A-R-E, or the mayor, M-A-Y-O? Oh, oh, well, in Chicago, we're all kissing the mare's foot right now, but we're kind of happy about it. No, M-A-R-E. I don't know why it that is the phrase that it is, but there we go. And from henceforth, I will no longer do any more medieval slang for the rest of this podcast because that 
it gets old very quickly. I thought you were going to say from henceforth, you would never record before dinner was served. Oh, God, no, no. I actually have already eaten. That was in the script before when I thought I was eating before dinner. But no, no, different things happen. That's fine. All right. Some background on this one. Robert Holmes was commissioned to write the novelization for this one. And depending on what source is being quoted about this story, he either wrote the entire intro and then passed it off to Terrence Dix or he wrote about three pages of an outline before asking Dix to do it instead. And this prologue comes from those three pages, which Dix used as notes. Either way, this is not all Dix for once. That's what she said. <sighs> hey, nice. And this is what Holmes would have intended the story to start with had it actually, you know, had a budget and everything. Mm-hmm. Among the notable casting for this one is the actor Jeremy Bullock, who played Hal. He would go on to even greater fame playing the body, but not the voice, of Boba Fett in that character's first two appearances in the Star Wars trilogy. Kevin Lindsay, who played Lynx, would go on to appear in Planet of the Spiders at the end of this season, and again as a Suntaran in the Suntaran experiment in the next season, and we will discuss him at length more later. And just one other little tidbit that I didn't put in the notes because it was a bit of a surprise to me. I just found out about this or was reminded about this yesterday. The part of Iron Gron, which was played on screen by David Dacre, was offered to Bob Hoskins. (laughs) But Bob Hoskins was busy at the time. He wasn't as famous at that time, but he was still quite busy. And he suggested David Dacre, and David Dacre did a very good job with that. And there is one majorly important cast member to talk about this time, because, obviously, it's the first appearance of Sarah Jane Smith. Mm-hmm. Indeed, yes. Dalton knows that name. I think even, uh, I think even Allison knows that name. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Thanks for using me as a shorthand well, for the lowest common denominator. Well, no, not the lowest common denominator, <laughs> but it's just what I'm trying to say is that even the most casual lowest common denominator fan will like recognize that name. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Keep digging, sir. All right, no, no problems. <laughs> uh, the character, the character of Sarah Jane Smith was created to replace Joe Grant, and she's gone to be one of the most well-known companions in the entire series. This is I was going to say, so- I'd say if a casual person on the street has heard of any original series companion, that's, she's who they would have heard of. Yes, exactly. This is owing to several factors. For one thing, she's the only companion to have gotten not one but two attempts at a spin-off series on television. The former one, K-9 and Company, was a failed pilot, the novelization of which we'll actually be reading eventually, because it was a target novelization, God help us. The latter, The Sarah Jane Adventures, was a series specifically geared towards children that went from 2007 to 2011. She also had her own Big Finish audio series from 2002 to 2006, the last of which was recorded and released not long before her character returned to the new series, for the episode School Reunion, in which she appeared with David Tennant, she was the first and thus far only companion from the classic series to make such an appearance. Joe Grant and the Brigadier, of course, would return in the Sarah Jane Adventures, but yeah. For another, because of that episode, 
her own series, and her appearance in The Five Doctors, she and the Brigadier are the only characters that have appeared with at least seven incarnations of the Doctor on screen. Just not the same seven. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's not clear whether the character would have been so insanely popular had not been for the casting. And it was actually revealed not long ago that the actress the production team eventually chose was not their first choice. Barry Letts and Terrence Dix originally cast the actress April Walker, who was known for her work on the Oneidin line, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and in comedies to play the part of Sarah Jane. Unfortunately, they neglected to consult John Pertwee about their choice, as they had when they were casting Katie Manning. As a result, it became clear during rehearsals very quickly for this story that Pertwee and Walker did not have the necessary chemistry. Some sources claim that Pertwee didn't want to work with an actress taller than he, which is patently ridiculous, because according to IMDb, Pertwee was 6'2", and Walker is barely 5'8". So, yeah, that's silly. Yeah, even if his was a bit exaggerated, it probably wouldn't be exaggerated to that. (laughs) By six inches, yeah. Yeah, yeah, precisely. She'd have to be a very tall woman. She'd have to be like... Alice and Jenny height, and I think even Alice and Jenny is um, only about 6'1", or 6 or something. As a result, Walker was released from her contract, which did not make her happy, and given payment for the full season, which likely did make her somewhat happy. <laughs> Let's also promise to use her in another one of his productions later, which he did, though not on Doctor Who. To their credit, neither Letts nor the actress who replaced Walker ever told anyone about this, nor did Terrence Dix, in interviews or on DVD extras. And it wasn't until the researcher on the Invasion of the Dinosaurs DVD found Walker's name on some paperwork that it came to light, well after the people involved had already died. Thus, Letts held a second casting round and found the actress who eventually brought Sarah Jane to life. That would be Elizabeth Sladen, or Liz for short. Born in Liverpool in 1946, Sladen attended drama school and went on to work at the Liverpool Playhouse Repertory, both as an occasional actress and as an assistant stage manager. Notably, she met her future husband, Brian Miller, there. He would later appear in person in the story Snake Dance, and then he would do Dalek voices in Resurrection of the Daleks, both in the 1980s. Miller led to Sladen getting in trouble with the theater directors on one memorable occasion, though. She was playing a corpse in the play The Physicists, and he, ironically, was playing a doctor. As he was playing at checking her over, he whispered in her ear, Respiration nil, Ashton Villa 2, and she started giggling. Because it was a, you know, football score. Oh, okay. Sorry, I did not get it at all. That's all right. It took me, uh, the first time I heard it, I didn't get it either. In short, the corpse corpsed on stage. Despite this, or maybe even because of it, her work as an assistant stage manager was so good, she was rarely cast on stage, so she deliberately started making mistakes so she (laughs) would get more acting parts. (laughs) And the strategy seemed to work, because after marrying Miller in 1968, she went on to have her first leading role as Desdemona in Othello and then moved on to television work, including Zed Cars, Coronation Street, and a now-missing episode of the well-regarded Doomwatch playing an eco-terrorist. 
The producer of Zed Cars gave Letts an enthusiastic recommendation for Slade, and when she arrived for audition, she had no idea it was for the companion role. So she was surprised that Letts was being so thorough during the audition. She was even more surprised to be introduced to Pertwee, whom she was initially intimidated by, and whom she didn't know was giving Letts a thumbs up behind her back whenever she wasn't looking. Mm. Apparently, Sladen was told about Walker, but never revealed the name of the actress that she replaced during her own lifetime, feeling that it would be unfair to April Walker. Sladen died of cancer in 2011, cutting short both her spinoff series and a long and creative career. Russell T. Davis recently wrote a special final episode of the Sarah Jane Adventures produced under quarantine, in which Sarah Jane has died to commemorate the anniversary of Sladen's death and it featured three of the actors from the spin-off series, as well as Katie Manning and Sophie Aldred, giving eulogies in character as Joe Grant Jones and Ace, respectively. One of Manning's lines is particularly poignant. Remarking on the absence of the doctor at the funeral, Joe says, But come on, he couldn't, could he? I mean, he's got two hearts. Imagine them both breaking. I don't think he could bear it. So, yeah, quite an impactful actress. Just as this character is going to be impactful, even though you may not know it from this book. Well, what do you volunteer to read the back cover? Because I don't have it in front of me, believe it or not. I can do it. His spaceship crippled in an interstellar battle, the Santarn warrior Lynx is forced to crash land on Earth. He arrives in the Middle Ages, a time too primitive to provide the technology he needs to repair his ship. Allying himself with the local robber chief, Lynx uses his powers to borrow scientists and equipment from 20th century Earth. Doctor Who tracks down the missing scientists and journeys into the past to save them. But can he defeat the ruthless Lynx and his savage human allies before the course of human history is changed forever? Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's not like the stakes are actually that high, but there you go. <laughs> well... What were your first impressions of this one? Allison, what were you expecting when you got this one? Somehow I'm overwhelmed by the questions. He must be contagious. Um, so, what? You mean like from based on the cover art or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just that. Pull it up again here because I did have an impression of the cover art and it was interior decorator. I, <laughs> I, I see the sofa against the wall like so. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. The sofa? <laughs> yes. And Lynx is uh, explaining his vision for a particular artistic project, and he's oh. gesturing how he how he wants it done and how he sees it. Oh, you um, mean his arms spread wide like that? or Yes, yes. Oh, okay. I thought instead of like the... showing you the size of the fish that he caught, <laughs> he's showing you how he wants the scenery or the furniture arranged, just so. Oh, I see. Gotcha. All right. Well, that's as good a first impression as any. Uh, Dalton? What was yours? I I wasn't quite quite sure what to expect given the little bit of experience I have with Centaurans from the the newer series. Seeing it kind of be an antagonist was interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't quite know what to expect. Even the back description, I was kind of okay. How how's this going to work out? Given that he's in the Middle Ages, yeah. How 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 are they actually going to be able to create anything? for him, given what they have to work with. 
Right. Even even taking equipment, it's like, well, where, what are your raw materials? Where are you getting anything from? Mm-hmm. Knowing that it was a Terrence Dix novel and knowing that it was more of an earlier Terrence Dix novel, I was expecting it to be of a higher caliber than, than some of the other ones that we've read of his. Right. Which it did actually end up being pretty solid novelization. So, so yeah, I think not knowing what I was getting into, I quite enjoyed it. Okay. Well... Here's the thing about this story, that it's a story of monumental firsts. It's the first story of Pertwee's last season, for one thing. It's the first season with Sarah Jane Smith, her first appearance. It is the first appearance of the Sontarans. It is the first, men- well, actually, they're not mentioned in the story, but they're mentioned in the book. The Rutan, uh, the Rutans are mentioned in the, uh, the book. Yeah. It is also the first time that we get a change to the opening sequence for the show for the first time in about four years. And it is an introduction of the Doctor Who logo that is mostly associated with Tom Baker. In fact, that's the logo that's on the cover of that book. It's the uh, Tom Baker logo. But it actually started with Pertwee. It started with this first season which is kind of a shock to the system that if you, for instance, are going back to the Pertwee years and you get used to the Pertwee opening and that logo, and then you shift forward and you see, oh, there's some weird overlap. Yeah, there's a lot of firsts, including the first time that the Doctor ever names his home planet on screen. Because hmm, we've seen it in several of the novels. but We have, yeah. but most of those novels were written after this. Yeah. And... Robert Holmes came up originally with the, with the name Golfrey. I don't know why, why it was that, but it was originally Golfrey. And then he changed it to something else, and then finally changed it to Gallifrey. And thus it has been ever since. For that matter, Robert Holmes, and I'll say this again before the next time we get to a Robert Holmes story, Robert Holmes has probably contributed as much as, if not more than Terrence Dixon in terms of the mythos of Doctor Who, because names the home planet, sets up the hierarchy of the Time Lords later on, does this, does that, gives us the whole season 6B theory. Yeah. And then we have the story. So let's go ahead and get started on this. Not I guess you just give us your first impression. Well, I'd rather not. I don't want to uh, poison the well just yet. Which implies that the well will be poisoned, but yeah. As well as the dinner. Yeah. Yes. Well, the dinner was fine. We'll just get a little little dozed. <laughs> okay. Let's actually start with Sarah Jane, because really that's the most important thing here. Apart from the Santarans, which we'll also get to. We do have to talk about Lynx as a character and the Santarans as a new baddie in general. What did we think of Sarah Jane? I loved her. I, I think that she brought a, a great energy to the story. She definitely um, just straight out of the, the bag, just is like sassy, got an attitude, uh, can't be knocked down. Um, even the fact that she's suspicious of the doctor <laughs> yes. um, from the start just kind of shows that she's going to be a force to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to see where this takes her. Yeah. It's definitely a different way of starting with a companion, isn't it? To have the companion not only suspicious of the Doctor, but outright working against him at certain parts of the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and saying, and saying that he's the one helping. <laughs> right. So, yeah, she's, she's great. Mm-hmm. How about you, Allison? 
Well, thinking back on previous companion introductions, and of course, I didn't read the ones where um, Barbara and Ian and, Sue and Susan first brought in, although Susan just there at the beginning already. She was there already. I'm trying to think of a previous companion other than Joe who didn't come on these. the scene being rescued by the doctor. Oh. Like it's the first encounter. I'm trying okay. to think if there's been a previous one like that. Vicky was rescued. Stephen was essentially rescued. Dodo, I, I wouldn't call that a rescue. I would just call it an unfortunate incident. And then we have Ben and Polly. Ben and Polly, eh, Ben and Polly aren't so much rescued as they just, you know, decide to break in with the key that they find. Yeah, actually, right. that, that that is a very similar startup then. This is, this is maybe more like Ben and Polly then. Mm -hmm. Just a bit more. Because they're suspicious of where, whether they've even traveled in time at first. And then later when he regenerates, there's this, well, Ben in particular is suspicious again. Definitely with Dalton, a lot of great energy. I felt like at this point, she is more a crackling energy girl reporter trope than a lot of individual personality yet. But that's, mm. that's also par for the course so far in how, how we've seen companions at first. And Joe had about 15 stories like that, yeah. um, where she had a lot of energy and not a lot of distinctive personality right mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we've got plenty of stories of the doctor like that as well <laughs> so, <laughs> so definitely was interested didn't feel like a fist pump like i felt like i was perhaps supposed to mm -hmm. in the story but considering the amount of girl power content that there was oh. in her lines i expected to be more excited or more annoyed at being patronized and i really wasn't either one hmm. i was like oh this is fine interesting Okay. That might be partly Terrence Dix's influence because he's gone on record as saying that he didn't necessarily want to have a companion who was, you know, spouting off about women's lips. He didn't use the phrase spouting off, but it, he had a very interesting... He was clearly almost, thinking it, yeah. Yeah, he was definitely... <laughs> yeah, there was definitely a patriarchal take. And if you see the interview that he does for the DVD of this story, then it's pretty clear that these not terribly on board with the oh that's what it is he's not terribly on board with the companion being quite so liberated and strong in her own right because he feels as he put it the proper place for a companion is tied up to the train tracks waiting for the doctor to come rescue her <laughs> he's oh, very yikes. equitable he'll tie a man to the train tracks any day as well yeah, exactly <laughs> And I think you're right there. That that may have been Taron Stick's um, cooling it down a little bit, but he actually does a few things that are improvements in that regard on the original script. Well, For he example, is really weird and condescending about Lady Eleanor, I thought. Where on the, the one doctor? hand, uh, no, uh, Terrence Sticks. Oh, oh. Um, about how he about he writes the character. How on the one hand, first introduction is. <laughs> This local king's wife just won't shut up. But then we have her making all the cold-blooded moves and then some of the more intelligent moves as well. But then she's easily shocked by modernity. And that sort of is more typical all-over-the-place presentation. And I didn't feel any condescension about Sarah Jane at all. Oh, okay. Okay. So I That's... felt like she got off better than any other female character in the story because the others were, were his weird combination of one hand gives and the other takes away that we've talked about so much. But I didn't feel like Sarah Jane had anything taken away. There are a few moments where the doctor is downright condescending in the story. But I thought it was supposed to be examples of him being relative to how we can show the doctor 
kind of an idiot. Like I thought he was supposed to be portrayed as condescending and dismissive and not to his credit. Right. Well, one of them survives into the book when the doctor says he's not going to report her for sneaking into the facility. And he says, you can make yourself useful. You can make the coffee. Mm-hmm. It's obviously meant as a joke in the book because we get him reacting to the fact that she immediately flares up about it. And it's like, okay, but on screen, it's pertly being condescending. Mm. And yeah, that's, a, that's that an interesting way. phase. Well, and then there, there's a callback to it later where he's going into the TARDIS and she's like, she says something about where is he going? He says, I'm going to go make myself a cup of tea. So that, yes. that, that's the tie-in to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely meant to be a joke. He's not trying to belittle her. On screen, that's not so clear. Especially later on, there's a line that does not survive into the novelization. Thank goodness, because it shocked the shit out of me when I saw it last night. When they get back to the other castle, Lady Eleanor's castle, because I can't remember her husband. Henry. He's pretty, pretty much useless. Sir, Sir Edward, Edward, sorry. Yeah. Sir Edward. Edward Henry Potato. When, when they get back to Sir Edward's castle and the doctor uh, has just told Sarah what he's doing there and why he's really there. And then Sir Edward and Lady Eleanor come in and Sarah is explaining to them, well, I may have been mistaken. The doctor says something along the lines of, Fight me, and, doctor. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And Sarah bristles at him again and says, well, or maybe he's just trying to play both sides against the middle. And that that exchange is not in the book. And I'm very glad to have seen it go because that really is just a, a sexist doctor moment and it doesn't have to be there. And luckily, Dix didn't think it should be there either. But yeah, as far as girl power goes, though, because it is very much along that line, isn't it? It's very much a pop culture. Lucky Nancy Drew. Yeah. It's yeah. Like Nancy, Nancy Drew is the hero of the story she appears in. And I, I thought we would actually have more of what we saw in Joe's earlier stories where Joe is very plucky and then Joe sort of face plants a few times before she yeah. gets it right. And we don't mm-hmm. really see that here. Not face planting in the same way as Joe does. I mean, Joe literally face plants a <laughs> times. In this case, Sarah Jane, it's more the mistakes that she makes are the sort of mistakes that any of us would make if we met this mysterious figure and weren't sure what he was doing. And especially if he wasn't telling us. Because, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, interestingly, it's Rubish, and that's how it's pronounced, by the way. (laughs) Rubish is the sexist character in this book. He's not on screen. On screen, he only has that line about there being a silver lining about him not seeing his wife and children. But he doesn't say anything about typical female cunning and some women can think almost as well as a man. That whole bullshit is... that's Which I thought was supposed to obviously mark him as an antagonist and then later it turns out he's just more... He's bumbling rather than an antagonist. But I didn't think that was supposed to speak well of him. I didn't take that for the author's voice. Right. Yeah. That's an addition on Dix's part. And it's a very good one because Rubish needs something to define his character. Dix even says in the interview that Rubish is just kind of there. And he actually had to give Robert Holmes some guidance to give that character something to do. So, he gives him something nice to play with, with the literal and figurative nearsightedness, and then he sort of grinds his own new lenses, and then he's not, he's less susceptible. Did I understand correctly? He's not susceptible to the hypnotism because 
he literally can't see. He literally yeah. can't see. Can't, can't with see. whatever the he can't. He's not ocularly interacting with whatever the dev, hypnotic mechanism is. Yeah, precisely. The uh, whatever the Santaran device is, it works with light, and he can't see the light. So in so many ways, and therefore is unable to be hypnotized. Yeah, nice little deus ex machina going on there, even though it's not really a deus type of thing. Just ex machina. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What else strikes you about Sarah? Because I know both of you are familiar with her already. So you have seen her in other things, and you kind of know the character as she became, not so much the character as she is here. It's Mm. good to have a break from someone who is... I don't mean good to have a break from Joe, but the... But the character was a military subordinate, so it's not a complaint about Joe, but it's nice to go back to a different kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I could yeah. see that. Yeah, and, and the idea of having her be a journalist, so that kind of perspective, that inquisitive mind, that always kind of digging for a story, um, is a, a kind of a fresh perspective. Yeah, because she's in this for completely different things than previous characters well, and it wasn't really clear at the end of this one that she was going to be the new companion i mean obviously we know that but the way the novelization ended right. um that was not yet established it no. wasn't established yet that she would want to be that's true that's very true. yeah now the thing that strikes me about sarah jane in the story is that she really isn't the sarah jane that she ends up being later on because sarah jane was essentially my first companion when i first watched doctor who because she'd already been there for a season before Tom Baker started. And in fact, my first story with Tom Baker was his second story. So I didn't even know about the whole unit thing until a little later on. But she does bring a different dynamic to that, because her goals and intentions are far different than those of unit. And for that matter, in some ways, even antithetical to it, because unit is supposed to be secret paramilitary organization and she's a member of the press so she really shouldn't know anything about what's going on there at all but not many of the stories tie into that kind of natural tension which is yeah is she going to continue to be a reporter or is that just the opening premise oh no she's always going to be a reporter so that's actually didn't know that yeah she's always going to have that as part of her character brief, which is a very good thing. Let's talk about the Suntarans, shall we? Because we get that, we haven't had a prologue to a book in a while, and we get a really lovely one. In fact, lovelier than this story really deserves. Uh, Because for those who have not read the book, uh, but are only familiar with the televised story, the book opens with that prologue that may or may not have been written or ghostwritten by Robert Holmes, in which... That makes sense. It was different than the rest of the book. Okay, let's start there. How was it different to you from the rest of the book? Well, I didn't think about it as different till the rest of the book till now, but I often talk about Dixel will have a will write a great, very engaging first 30 pages and then devolve into run, 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 fight, 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 walk, 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 bye, 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 um, towards for the, for, the, for the next 60 or 100 pages. And this was my, my favorite first 30 pages by Dick Sever. So it makes oh. sense. <laughs> Someone else wrote it. Uh, well, no, but the doctor uh, doesn't appear for, I think, 25 pages in the, right. in the edition that I have. So last book, we were admiring the uh, point of view from uh, 
the yes. maggot. <laughs> <laughs> Even before he was a maggot, when he was still yet to hatch and sort of contemplating his life. I, I, I love the prologue part from Link's perspective. And I, I like layered villains when we have a couple of different villains and one is worse than the other uh, or more evil than the other. And so I, I actually loved the way they established the character and gave us a lot of sympathy or empathy with his situation and a lot of what we would define in sort of character program terms as a lot of sort of virtues and good qualities. Mm-hmm. And then thereafter, almost everything we see him do is dastardly. Compared to Iron Grun, he's very self-disciplined. He is comparatively principled, even if the principles are messed up. He is very hardworking and self-sacrificial relative to the work that he does compared to Iron Grun, whose response to the food and drink being not very good is not to, uh, you know, farm or ranch or hunt <laughs> but <laughs> go take someone else's food right. and so i actually thought it gave us a terrific hierarchy of villains to establish first of all link's personal you know journey of attempting to survive and all these times he thinks it's the end and his experience of the burn and the how he feel the fear he feels before it how agonizing it is during the relief he feels afterwards mm-hmm. um and comparing that to iron Grun's band of grumpy men should we say yes. <laughs> yeah <laughs> even even later in the story you find out it seems like the only thing iron grin is actually good for is uh, good at his fighting and towards the end we found out he's actually not very good at fighting he just hits really hard <laughs> so yeah. i thought that gave us a very interesting dynamic <laughs> that was kind of worn out by the end but it was quite interesting at the beginning between links and iron grin where you would expect the story would be set up so that we root for the humans <laughs> Right. <laughs> on our own planet but instead if we have any any sympathy in that situation we're rooting for links who is actually you know organizing things and getting it done as opposed to iron Grunt, who just sort of scratches himself and steals things yeah true dalton did you feel that way about the prologue as well yeah i um even even though the back of the the book says that it takes place on earth the whole the whole prologue i'm imagining some other star system <laughs> that he's in <laughs> not not until you know it's like the second to last page where they they mention that there are nine planets and he's found the third one this blue planet seems to be <laughs> uh to be good but but yeah I, I like how you get inside his head and you really feel the kind of worry that he has being chased and how he feels like oh i'm not getting out of this and even whenever he does feel like finally there's that moment where he's he's going to to break free no he gets hit by a burst because the, the rutan used a different weapon that he wasn't expecting them to use so yeah, I definitely feel for him. And even at the end, like even with everything that he's done, I was kind of saddened that he died. <laughs> um, just because it, he was just trying to get back home. Yeah, I mean, the Santarans are a war-loving species, but in the end, he was just doing what he could to leave this dusty rock and get back to his people. Mm-hmm. Now, that could mean bad things for humans eventually but in this instance he he just was trying to get home so yeah exactly. so there's yeah there's a lot of layers there yeah i i really did enjoy the the prologue though where you get you really get to kind of feel for him right and the doctor even offers to help him get back home if he's willing to release the scientists and 
that is probably the biggest flaw right there, that that Suntaran pride keeps him from being able to do so, and he sees the Doctor as merely a combatant because he's a time Well, I thought most of the empathy was meant on our part, was supposed to evaporate as soon as we get to the part of, you know, him being delighted to have found this this planet with living things on it and everything's going to be all right because now I will enslave them and use them to my own ends. <laughs> where it's a bit like <laughs> the point of view of the maggot where yeah. it's now decided it will go eat the world <laughs> and we're supposed to feel, to feel the, oh, oh yes, this is not going to be our hero moment. Right. It is odd though to even have that point of sympathy I very much wonder if we would have gotten it all the way through the book had Robert Holmes continued to write mm-hmm. it. Had we gotten more from Lynx's point of view. He even gets a first name for crying out loud. And Suntarans don't have names. I mean, they don't have first names. So to even have that is surprising. We hear about their conflict with the Rutans. We hear their home planet is named amazingly. And that's something that doesn't get named on screen, I believe, until the new series. It's not called Santara until we get to the uh, David Tennant era, I believe. But it also shows a couple things. One, it shows how delusional the Santarans are, because they see themselves as rulers of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. But uh, then again, this is a show that has always had trouble telling the difference between galaxies constellations and solar systems (laughs) they tend to mix them up which is ironic given that they spend a lot of their time (laughs) in space on this show and we're also introduced to the idea of the probic vent and that is the way that the sarntarns feed on pure energy pure energy which is a marvelous Chekhov's gun if ever we saw one And it's interesting both how it's described more like a stimulant drug than food, to the point that Lynx is actually kind of afraid of the jolt at first. Yeah, it's like, I'm about to shoot heroin up, and it's going to feel great after, but I'm afraid of that needle going in. And the second thing is that it causes that delusional point of view makes him look at it as a strength, that it requires them to always have their enemies in front of them rather at their back, even though there's always an enemy at their back, apparently, and this time it was <laughs> f***ing rubbish. Well, there's this great moment in there describing this experience of the burn where he's talking, which I can find it. Talking about basically retreating within himself and, oh, here it is, okay. The flood of power through his tissues was like a roaring madness, a chaotic maelstrom of color and sound depriving him of all sentient knowledge of the outside world. He felt himself clinging like a limpet within some solitary crevice of consciousness, aware only that he still existed, still existed, still. I thought that was a great psychological moment of smallness of himself within his own mind, within the power of this experience. And then, you know, I took it not so much as him looking forward to drugs because it's it's his duty. He needs to do this to stay alive. And then it was surprising to me at the end, he actually does have this sort of ecstatic drugged out reaction. Before that, it seemed kind of awful. Yeah. It really does. And it does give them that really, really great weakness that can be exploited. I didn't mean to say, oh, it explains so much that someone else wrote the first 30 pages because they're good. I didn't mean... Right. (laughs) I did not mean that as an 
insult to Terrence Dicks. Uh, it surprised me we didn't go back to his perspective at the end. That, that would make sense if someone else wrote it. I thought actually, there would actually be a bit of an epilogue from his perspective. Is it actually 30 pages? Well, epilogue? I refer to the first 30 pages. Here it's 25 pages in that the doctor comes in. 24, 25. Oh, okay. There we go. Yeah, the, the prologue's only like 10 pages. Only 10 pages. Okay, that's what I well, was Well, and I'm counting not only Link's part of the prologue, but also Iron Grin as well. Okay. Several pages. Yeah, well, Iron Grin, the, that scene in the castle is the opening of the story. So that might explain why this book is actually longer than the typical novelization, because it's 142 pages. Standard length is more around 122, 123. And the only thing I can think of is that Dix wanted to include that prologue so badly that he was willing to go over page count a little bit, because this is only a four-part. And thank God for it, because six <laughs> parts of this would just be, just be misery. As it is, it's kind of unusual to have this bizarre opener for a season because they've had such strong opening stories for the Pertwee era. They've had the Autons, they had the Autons and the Master, and Joe. Then they had the Daleks, then they had the Three Doctors, and then we get this. So what I was thinking about before we read this one was whether or not we had had any historicals with the Pertwee Doctor. No. Thank you for pointing that out, because you're right. This is what's loosely called a semi-historical. It's a historical story that has a science fiction element to it. And we haven't had one of those at all since the Troughton era. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while. It has been a very long while. Another thing to be kind of grateful for, <laughs> because those can be dire. What did you think of the combination of science fiction and history in this one? I enjoyed how it was employed. I, I liked that the doctor brought up that if Lynx gave them guns before they were supposed to, that they would have nuclear capabilities by the 1700s. Yeah, it just kind of brought into perspective how that could really affect our own timeline. But also, since it's supposed to be medieval times, how they kept bringing up the idea of witchcraft and devils and oh, how yeah. the, people, the people were still very much into mysticism and the natural world not being fully understood. So the doctor even playing around with sulfur was something that scared them. Smoke and just sounds. The fact that they didn't want to go out at night because the demons that possibly could have been lurking uh, in the forest. And so they hold off their attack until the morning. Yeah, as a matter of fact, there's that lovely evocative paragraph in the first chapter. This was an age in which the powers of evil were very real, when old crones sold their souls to the devil for sinister powers. And sinners were frequently hauled off to hell with a clap of thunder and a stick of sulfur. The men of Iron Grand's band had plenty of sins on their consciences. None of them was anxious to meet the evil one before time. So they all think they're going to hell. <laughs> yeah. But it's just a matter of when. And they don't want to take the risk of going any sooner than they need to go. Well, it's right. kind of it's nice because it's really the only characterization we get for them other than thugs is that they do have some sense of conscience that they <laughs> they know themselves to be up to no good yes a bit more personality mm -hmm. yeah. yeah but and, not much and there's the line when link says he's a Santaran officer and bulladax says did he say he's a saracen <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. exactly. um, so there's even that kind of historical tie-in about a, another culture that is contemporary that that was mystical and 
magical. But also brought to greater concentration my annoyance that this is being characterized as the entire era, as opposed to the fact that Britain is still a world backwater at this time. Mm-hmm. And the Saracens would have been significantly more scientifically sophisticated oh, yes. God, yes. around the Mediterranean and China has gunpowder. You know, we have the concept of Greek fire going back to the to the ancient world. So I was a little annoyed that the doctor identified that in this era, no one have any idea what explosives were of king no on this island they're not familiar <laughs> with that but there are humans in this era who have been experimenting with explosives and chemicals and other things like that well yeah th- that's one thing and another is as has been pointed out by many readers there are potatoes in the novelization yes <laughs> there pride of be. north america maybe yeah. of south america the americas yeah yeah shouldn't be no, no, no potatoes. They would not have had potatoes at all. <laughs> but, but you're right. And come to think of it, I, I wish I knew what the exact date of the story was, because it could very well be right around the same time as the first doctor and his crew are meeting King Richard, because it's it's heavily implied that whatever it is that uh, the doctor brought them potatoes no 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 (laughs) it's heavily implied that sir edward came back with some sort of disease that he caught while he was off on the crusades yes yeah i think it's set out right that he yeah yeah it doesn't say what it is it just says that it's a fever and it's like well that could be anything it could be malaria it could be typhus it could be something that would allow him to still survive, but be in a very weakened state upon coming back. Well, I thought they said that his sons were still off the Crusades or like the fighting men he ordinarily would have had yes. around. Mm-hmm. And that's why he has only child fighters and elderly yeah. fighters. Yeah. Yeah. And that's then Hal. And Hal. Hal. What do we think of Hal? Yeah. Boba Fett. It's, it's kind of weird that Hal would even be there, to be honest, because he should be, he's able-bodied enough that he... Should be off fighting, but maybe he could have been a soldier, but he took an arrow to the knee. Sorry, I had to put that in there somewhere. <laughs> since, took me a moment. Since Lynx takes an arrow to the back of the neck, eventually. Yeah. Oh, God. I, my life. There's something else that's interesting, too. This happens on screen, and even then it's kind of weird. Lynx uses a translator so that he can speak their language. He says that the sector space has never been scouted. How does the translator know to give him the right dialect of English in order to speak to them? Something you have on Star Trek, the universal translator, where if it gets enough of a sample, the software works it out. But I don't know. I, Maybe that's it. I hope. I that's just kind it. of accepted it, but... Yeah. Well, analyze it. It's magic. Well, Well, they're obviously technically sophisticated enough, aren't they? Because think about it. They have limited time travel technology, but they do have it. The the Osmic Projector. They have that, which is probably why the Time Lords know about them already. They know about the Time Lords to the point that the Doctor actually gets stroppy when Lynx points out that the Time Lords would probably be taken very quickly by an invasion force and the doctor actually says I'd, I'd, I'd like you to try it yes yes yeah. very very offended quite yeah. clutching his pearls and it ends up being somewhat prophetic as it turns out mm-hmm. um yeah <laughs> what i didn't understand about language is when hal and 
Sarah Jane first meet, Hal doesn't understand what she's saying, I thought. And I thought they were indicating that, you know, they would be speaking, technically both speaking English, but dramatically different dialects. And maybe what he was speaking would have more mm. in common than modern German, modern English. That's but then true. She does, she does converse with various people later. So I, I, I was confused about who was speaking what and who, who understood who. Well, remember this, that she came in the TARDIS and we've already established, well, it will be established later, that the TARDIS translates for everybody. It could very well be that it's already decided, well, she came with the doctor, so I might as well translate for her as well. But it can only translate, say, as much as there's a common ground between the two languages, which there would be because, you know, they may be speaking. What are they speaking at this point? You're about to hear your host pull something out of his ass for the same reason that a politician talks about a pandemic and says there's nothing to worry about because he knows nothing. They're speaking probably the beginnings of Middle English. So they're speaking Chaucerian English. Well, I thought there was some indication that maybe Irongrensmen might be speaking something a little bit different than what Sir Henry was speaking. Like, like, oh, you talk like a Norman. A Norman ninny. I flute and snob or something like that. Yeah. That maybe maybe there are different regional languages going on. There was a hint of something interesting in there, but I didn't quite understand what they were suggesting. Yeah, and Dix doesn't go into enough detail about it, but it is there. Not long ago, I was reading up on the history of languages again, and how at this point in time, English was very slowly morphing into modern English, which would start not long before Shakespeare's time, as a matter of fact. But at this point, it would have been a little closer to Chaucer, and probably at the far end, the uh, beginning of Middle English. Because he knows nothing. And there would have been some difficulty with dialects. You would have had people, in fact, one of my favorite stories is from around that same time, and I can't remember if it's the uh, Honorable Bede. I think in his journal, it might be the Honorable Bede, in his journals he says something about going maybe about 20 miles to a different town, maybe it was 50, and he orders breakfast at an inn, and he asks if they have eggs. And the woman stares at him and says, well, we have no meat here. And he says, no, 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 eggs, do you have eggs? Well, we don't have any meat. And he says, no, the things that come from chickens... And she says, oh, those we call iron. And it tells you just how much of a different language they would have been speaking if they just traveled 50 miles away. Could very well be that Iron Ground and his men are absolutely speaking something different. They certainly can't read, obviously. But whatever language is written on that page that Sir Edward tried to send to his allies it wouldn't have been anything near modern English or even Middle English, I'm sure. I thought that was very good comedy, that um, there was no need to eat or destroy the paper because none of them could read. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And it's especially, it's even stupider on screen when you see the size of that paper because the line is there, but it's like, he could never have eaten that. It's this huge (laughs) parchment. What indigestion he'd have. Exactly. Particularly talking about when Hal says he can't understand Sarah, I took that as meaning that he just didn't know what the fuck a telephone was. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Excuse me, can you tell me where to find the nearest telephone? What? <laughs> and he well, should yeah. have said it's all Greek to me. <laughs> exactly. Well, a few that... times she's described as speaking gibberish in the ears of the hearer, but later in the kitchen, 
the gibberish is her suggesting some sort of gender equality and um, the, the <laughs> staff just thinks she's nuts. But I understand the word. So yeah, I, I, I wasn't always sure which thing they were conveying. Yeah, I agree with Dalton. Like, is it because he doesn't know what she's talking about or he doesn't yeah. understand the individual words? That she, yeah. it's, it's the concepts because if Hal had heard her say the word telephone, he would have literally thought she was speaking Greek. Because the concept would not have been available. And yet, when she does get into the kitchens and starts spouting off the women's lib, as Dix would have called it, <laughs> um, she's told that she needs to, to stay in her place. And her lovely response to that is, it's like you're all living in the Middle Ages. And yeah, you know, so that line <laughs> is played for laughs on screen. But in the book, it's really a grim reminder. She thinks, oh, God, no, these poor women actually are living in the Middle Ages. Well, <sighs> and the, the really nice kernel of truth that they have in there is, is that these women are, we would say in modern terms, upholding the patriarchy, have the grimmest, darkest, most contemptible view of men you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> That is my experience in the modern world as well, that the women who seem the most invested, especially in stricter religious circles, who are most invested in upholding that, if you get them talking about the reasoning behind it, it, it turns right. into this dark monologue about, well, because men are essentially rapists and you oh. have to take steps to present to prevent that. And they're also idiots who just, you know, operate on their stomachs and their penises. You're like, oh my God, you're really sexist, aren't you? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, so I thought he actually did have a nice kernel in there of what these women might actually be thinking. On the one hand, they seem quite subservient. On the other hand, they're looking around in a pretty grim way. And, and yet we get Lady Eleanor, who's almost like a Lady Macbeth in some ways, or at least she shapes up to be initially, because her husband is ostensibly still in command and in power, but she's the one who sends Hal off and says, you know, maybe if you put an arrow or two in Iron Grunt's head, this whole problem would just go away. <laughs> with uh, the suggestion with the force of command in other words well this is where i was kind of annoyed by dicks not being able to decide which sexist stereotype he wanted to use because <laughs> he starts with some line about as usual son henry was just waiting for his wife to get tired of talking and of course she was going to outlast him or something where the <laughs> suggestion was that she was a nattering busybody who just didn't understand politics and society and that sort of thing but then we get for the rest of her appearance is an idea that she is the shrewd one who is uh, a little bloodthirsty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, she, she orders uh, Iron Grid assassinated twice. Right. Well, actually, once and then later she thinks the doctor is suggesting poisoning them all. She's like, yeah, go on. <laughs> a gleam in her eye or something. And the doctor's like, what do you take me for? <laughs> so, yeah. He, and then other times she's kind of the voice of reason. So I, I don't know if this is the original script or Terrence Dix, but it seems like he can't quite decide which of those directions he wants to go in. It, it's partially that because it's there in the original script, too, but... The difficulty with this is that it's got so much to do that the secondary characters get not the greatest characterization at all. Well, similar with Sir Henry, because in that sometimes it seems like, all right, he's got this illness, but he's intelligent and strong-minded, and other times it's suggested that he's just a mere shadow of him, his former self. Yeah. His mind and courage are somewhat dulled. Yeah, I think that's more physical debilitation than anything else because obviously he takes instruction well since sarah teaches him how to paint the faces on the dummies 
which is just delightful. Yeah, there's something else about Lady Eleanor, too, and the way they all react to the Doctor. They essentially accept him as a magician. They accept his claim that he's lived longer than 200 years, Mm -hmm. which is something that takes them aback on screen, but Dix quite sensibly has them just take it in their stride, because, of course, he's a magician. Of course he's lived more than 200 years. They also had a sort of a class recognition of they recognize him as educated, and he has the sort of social mobility of an educated man, and maybe he's a wizard as well, but, you know, that he's... That they respond to him in a way they wouldn't the the sort of local peasantry because he is a suitable person to move in their circles in a way that there are not others around like that. Yes. At one point, Sir Edward even says he seems a very courtly rogue. Yes, yes. Yeah, so... (laughs) That's a good gag. We would probably say gentleman at this point, but they would say that he was courtly. So he certainly seems like somebody who has the education and manners and grace of nobility. And that's probably part of the reason why they're so willing to take him on, whereas if he was just the usual hedge wizard with, you know, <laughs> long robes and unshaved beard and all that, that they'd <laughs> a category right the sort of unwashed country wizard. Yeah, <laughs> Always exactly. tending his herbs. <laughs> well, yeah, in a very real sense, because that would have been the source of medicines for most of the uh, peasants at that point, if I'm remembering correctly. That it would have been somebody who, you know, you could probably call a wizard, but actually it's just somebody that knows a bit about herbology. And that's also something that Lady Eleanor knows about, though I was kind of surprised to hear that they had, what was it, Wolfsbane in the kitchen? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know my herbs well enough to know which ones might have been surprising. They had something. They had a couple in there that were just, in in the right doses, would be outright poisonous. But instead, (laughs) they're. Spanish fly? It's also most of our income, too, selling that. (laughs) No, not that. (laughs) Christ almighty. Anyway. All right. Well, what else about this book strikes you? What else would you like to talk about? Well, there's the. Robot warrior. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, we probably should talk about that, shouldn't we? <laughs> um, what, what strikes you about that, Dalton? Well, um, the idea that the first, uh, the first incarnation of it uh, is basically a remote-controlled Sachenbopper. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, it's yeah. great in a black, yeah. Yeah, just uh, going at it. They, you know, destroy the remote and then all hell breaks loose because it can't be controlled anymore. That, but then also in the second scene where we see it, but it's not actually it, where the doctor is disguised as it (laughs) and sword fighting against two people simultaneously. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I would like to see that. Yeah. It, well... (laughs) As you might have guessed, it's only Pertwee for part of it, <laughs> because he does have his face hidden, so you're able to get the stunt double, who would have been, um, but it would have been, but I love that when you get to that bit, you get inside the suit of armor, the doctor's side, he had hoped that his mere appearance in the robot disguise would keep Iron Guard quiet for a while. He hadn't yep. expected to provide a practical demonstration. <laughs> inside the suit of armor, the doctor groaned again and raised his sword. It's like, oh, God, why? I could have done this quicker. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, the, the idea that the Doctor is able to fend off two people. Yeah, he comes off as more of an action hero in this story than usual, doesn't he? Yeah. It was because... a little weird because ordinarily we would see him win by doing something clever as opposed to something that's... Well, it is indicated it's partly skill, but it's also partly brute strength in a way that doesn't quite sit right. Yeah, well, it's not brute strength, though, uh, because he doesn't fight them off. He, he barely holds his own, and it's when Iron Grand says, hey, let's get an archer in here and put a few arrows in it. He's like, um, <laughs> that's not exactly sporting old man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Understandably. He does have a moment, though, and this is something that doesn't happen on screen when he's trying to save Hal, who's been put up against the first version, the Robot Point One, and he uses a crossbow to shoot the control out of Iron Grin's hand. He, he actually goes up to the battlements, and there are two people on the battlements, and somehow they don't notice him right behind them shooting this crossbow. Mm. It's the most ridiculous thing. Here, here, Dix has kind of this cutaway. It's the easiest way to describe this. It's in chapter 8. We hear that he goes up there and that there are two people on the battlements. And we don't know what the doctor, we don't get to see what the doctor does to the guard, but it's no doubt some serious Assassin's Creed shit because we hear that they're unconscious when he shoots the crossbow, which is just great. There should be more of that. (laughs) Chapter 8 also has the unfortunate line, which it turns out actually was on screen. She'll not creep far before one of my guards catches her tail. Yeah, talk about getting stuff past the censors. That robot knight is frankly embarrassing on screen, by the way. It is the most ridiculous thing. That's kind of how I imagine it. I imagine it being crafted out of cardboard boxes. (laughs) Oh, it is. It is. Well, remember, he's he has brought back some material from the 20th century as well as scientists. So he has something to build it with. No, I mean the actual actual construction on the set. I mean, I assume the BBC built it out of cardboard boxes. Oh, Maybe no. some BBC pipe? No, no. As a matter of fact, I can show it to you because I do have that on my uh, computer. Because I haven't played any clips from this, and there's a very good reason. It's because I... Uh, you may have guessed this already. I kind of hate this story. Okay, there it is. And we'll we'll get to see Boba Fett for a second too, which will be fun. All right, let me make sure this isn't too loud for everybody, and you'll get to see exactly what it was <laughs> that Boba Fett was fighting back in 1973. <laughs> and here we go. That's it, walking up. Then stand against Iron Grant's champion. Who this. is this? You don't see some sport now, Blood Axe? Here. Hello. Master, this is not fair combat to pitch knight against Bowman, but this close range his arrows will pierce the armor's weak point. Hey, game, fellow. I am that. You're freedom if you kill him. Stand back! Go, Boba Fett. They have curling irons in this period. <laughs> Your champion will have more arrows in his gizzard than a, than a thistle has spikes. <laughs> the music doesn't do any help. Why <laughs> not? This is the most ridiculous thing. See, they're right there. 
Well, I mean, they've established that uh, Iron Grin's men are not the not on the ball. Oh, yeah, I think you'll be fine. Though. <laughs> <laughs> All I have to do is just run at it, and knock it over. Oh, those flared uh, collars back in the seventies. Yeah, so that's blood axe is like a tin tadpole. You cut off its head, and yet it wriggles. Yeah. I'll have a word with Lynx about this. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> so there you are. <laughs> that is the robot, uh, the which robot. is much more impressive on the printed page than not on screen. Much. But not by much. <laughs> that's, that's actually slightly better than I imagined it. Oh, just wanted to get into the changes that Dick's made, because there were a few that were really quite important. One of them is, and this is a big one, Sarah is one of the few companions that does not get a scene wherein she's reacting to the size of the interior of the TARDIS. Mm. Because they didn't have a TARDIS scene, probably for money's sake. But it means that she dashes into the TARDIS, and the next time we see her, she's coming out. And she's marveling at the fact that it's still just an old police box. They don't show the inside of the TARDIS? No. Wow. That's interesting, because so many of the stories we've read so far begin and or end with some sort of conversation. In the TARDIS. Looking backwards or mm-hmm. for- forwards, yeah, in the TARDIS, which is... Yeah. And that was definitely the case for the uh, 1960s. But by the time we get to the 70s, I think... I think the production team had gotten to the point where they forgot that they could have TARDIS interior shots because they weren't using the TARDIS nearly as often. Hmm. And come to think of it, they don't have them for the entirety of Tom Baker's first season. So that's that's a long period of time not seeing the interior. Here, however, Dix makes up for that by having Sarah Stowaway in a closet, marvel at the size of the whole thing, and then when she comes out, there's also the fact that she notices that there's a difference in the air quality, which is... Yeah, that was a yeah. nice moment. It's a very Chronicles of Narnia <laughs> feel. Yeah, it could have been even more touched upon, really, but... Well, I thought know. it was intentional when she said it was like playing in a wardrobe. Like, you remember the wardrobe, right? You know, the wardrobe, the kids, again, the wardrobe. Right. Oh. <clears throat> wink, does wink. She, does she yeah. actually say that? Yeah, well, the, the text of the book says, somehow it reminded her of childhood games. She was in a wardrobe. Oh, there we go. Well, and she specifically goes to a 20th century person's idea of, a, of a medieval Britain. Yeah. Where the Pippinsies go. She thinks she's at, what is the name of that restaurant chain? Medieval Times. Medieval Times, That yes. was very funny, too. I <laughs> she I goes mean, through different scenarios about what it could be. It didn't exist then, obviously, but yeah, she thought she was in a recreation of a fair, or she thought she was at Renfest, which probably did exist then. <laughs> There's uh, a very good King of the Hill episode about it. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. About a Ren fair, yes. <laughs> Right? Oh. Hear ye, hear ye. Tune into The Cleveland Show and King of the Hill weeknights from 6 to 7 p.m. You could win tickets to the Texas Renaissance Festival. I'll tell ye what. Watch for your chance to win passes daily. Plus, one lucky winner will claim the grand prize. A trip for 10 to Renfest. Travel like a king and his court in a limo, complete with food accommodations. Take part in the merriment. And you notice that Dix is trying to give us a little bit of education here, or at least his readers, because he mentions that there's a minstrel's gallery 
which would have been unusual for anyone recreating the Middle Ages because not everyone remembers that they actually existed. And that whole bit about the chandelier or candelabra or whatever it is actually having to be tied up to the wall when it wasn't in use because the doctor ends up using it later for his little um, flying trapeze routine. Mm -hmm. And also finding out what the original meaning of chivalry was. And Lincoln Green, I had to look that up because I forgot... I didn't know that that was a, a different thing. I had to look up. Was it poltroon? Poltroon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wayface ninnies. More of a, these are more, I think, of like Mark Twain insults. But. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a really nice parallelism uh, in the book that I was wondering whether it was in the episode or the song parents Dix puts in. So a few pages apart, we have this. We're talking about Lynx's spaceship being brought into Iron Britain's castle. Dragged from the forest by teams of sweating horses, it had been hauled into the castle and down to the cellars on an extraordinary arrangement of rollers and pulleys devised by Lynx. Ironburn had driven his men mercilessly until at last the scout ship was installed to Lynx's satisfaction. And a few pages later, the doctor looked on as a half dozen sweating soldiers wrestled the TARDIS into position just outside his cubicle door. All right, that'll do. The corporal in charge of the squad saluted and led his men away. So I thought this was an interesting parallelism that... Unit and Ironbridge men are both having dealings with a space traveling space alien. Yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. <laughs> the the aliens' effects on their lives and their equipment hauling experiences are very different. <laughs> yeah. I actually thought that was a really nice parallelism. So I wondered if it was in the episode or something it, uh, it's, Dick's put in. It's not. In fact, all the references to the TARDIS having to be brought down for the doctor are new, especially since that whole bit with the brigadier saying, well, if I bring it down, you're going to run away on me. That is not. Legitimate fear, though. He makes a salient point. <laughs> it is a legitimate fear, that's for sure. It's He's also going to go on vacation. It's also interesting that Dix gives the brigadier, who's barely in the story, this very insightful view of the doctor, chapter two, and I have it in front of me. The brigadier looked at him thoughtfully. He'd been worried about his old friend for quite some time. Ever since his assistant Joe Grant had surprised everyone suddenly by getting married, the doctor had been unusually irritable. He had brusquely refused the offer of a new assistant, saying he'd manage on his own. The brigadier knew that the doctor missed Joe, and he also knew that the doctor was far too stubborn to admit it. When a new and puzzling problem had come up, the brigadier had almost welcomed it. What the doctor needed was a really good scientific mystery. It's it's lovely that the brigadier has a better judge of the doctor's character than even the doctor himself might credit him with. Well, if we were what you pointed out, we were missing from the end of the previous book, where Joe leaves and the doctor is, you know, relatively unaffected by it. On, yeah, on novelization. Whereas he's whereas there's a really touching end to the episode has aired. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like Dix is saying, "Oops, I guess Malcolm dropped the ball on that one. Let me see if I can fill in the gaps a little bit there." Which one was published first? Green Death was published first. Okay, so I, I was actually wondering if he really was sort of trying to plug that hole, if you will. Yeah, yeah, because this was this was 1978, so I believe Green Death was. What did I tell you all? Why don't you remember these things for me? Good Lord. Well, you don't <laughs> was, uh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I need to increase your pay, don't I? <laughs> Triple it, at least. Yeah, true. <laughs> it, it's significantly afterward, though. It definitely is that. 
And I don't remember if the Brigadier actually says something about Metabulus 3 on screen, but he does say it here. <laughs> oh, yeah, like you handled things there? Yeah. Yeah, I forbid you to go off in that contraption. There's no telling where you'll fetch up. Remember Metabulus 3? The doctor was stung. I got there eventually, didn't I? Eventually, indeed. After detouring around most of the universe, according to Miss Grant. <laughs> and that is enough of a distraction for Sarah to somehow get into the TARDIS first, whereas on screen, this room is so small that they are in the front towards the camera. She's right behind them. There's no way that they can miss her going into the TARDIS. So at least that's taken care of a little bit. So they're about as sharp as those guards on the ramparts were watching the, uh, watching the fight. Yes, or the unit soldier who shoots a friggin' machine gun... <laughs> inside the building when he sees the apparition of Lynx. He shoots first, asks questions later. That seems to be the unit way. Anything That's on the else? written test. Sequence these events. Shoot. <laughs> ask questions. Right. <laughs> I do love that Lady Eleanor tells Sarah that it's men's work and women's place to wait. And Which is Sarah... not how Lady Eleanor has been running the show either. Mm -hmm. Not Lady, at all. Lady Eleanor has been ordering hits. Yeah, which is interesting. As soon as Sarah says, I think some men's clothes would be best, Lady Eleanor was too shocked to reply. And that's hilarious given that she's perfectly willing to take out some hits on her husband's arch nemesis. But dressing like him is a little going just a little too far. But I actually thought it was kind of a nice notice of the fluidity within time and cultures of what is or is not considered propriety. Well, I wouldn't wear this slightly different clothing, but if I'll, you know, I'll, I'll kill whoever I need to. Yeah, exactly. And one other thing that I wanted to point out, we mentioned it briefly earlier. The doctor's assertion that if they're given breech-loading rifles now, they'll have atomic weapons by the 17th century, and you, you mentioned that, Dalton. Mm -hmm. That concept had always fascinated me. I always wanted to see a story that was set in some sort of alternate timeline where exactly that happened. And the doctor realizes, oh, I, I guess there's something I didn't fix back then and has to figure it out. But he first has to save humanity from destroying itself because that would have placed them having nuclear weapons within decades of the Great Plague of London, which I'm reading about in uh, Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really giving it to myself during this quarantine. <laughs> Wasn't the one he probably plagiarized from, like, someone else and then yep. made stuff up? Yep, that's the one. That's exactly the one. In fact, I read that in a couple of notes. And of course, the editor of this particular text said, well, this text has similarities to another text by so-and-so. And it's like, no, no, these are outright steals. Don't be silly. By the way, listeners, it's a fascinating book to read because if you can get around the 17th century English in it, it's beat for beat what's going on right now, and it's terrifying. Let's just hope that our world doesn't end the same way that that, but yeah. So I just have a, a highlight. Iron really wants to, to see Lynx without his helmet on, and he keeps telling him no. And then he says, well, you must be beautiful. And then once he finally <laughs> does see him, he says, I, I told you you might not find my face pleasing. I never was tr a truer word spoken. Are they all as fair a face beyond the stars? The variety of sentient life forms is infinite. Do you think your primitive features are pleasing to me? You must be pleasing. Do I please you? Do you find me pleasing? 
This man's wearing a push-up bra. Now he's pleasing. What is it that you want? Just <laughs> how that, that kind of comes back to that and him basically just blowing him off saying, well, I, I told you you didn't want to see me. There are some good jokes in here. I like that the, the insults are about being skinny. <laughs> Who did this? That was Lady Eleanor. That narrow-hipped vixen. And then later we're told some of the, <laughs> one of the male characters is too thin to be taken seriously. Right. You don't hear a lot of those insults anymore. And the best joke in the whole book, I think, and it's also on screen too, is when the doctor is describing links and he says, nasty, brutish, and short, just about yes. sums him up, <laughs> which is directly from Thomas Hobbes in 1651's Leviathan, and that's how he described the life of man at that time. It's absolutely hilarious to have that in there. That's definitely Robert Holmes at his best. Yeah. And just uh, the the detail about the Santaran coming from a, a planet that has higher gravity, so that's why they're short and yeah. and very strong. Yes, the gravity itself is is much higher, and that they reproduce asexually, mm-hmm. which is why he's surprised to see Sarah there. And <laughs> you have a secondary uh, reproduction system on this planet. You should change it. <laughs> you should change it right. <laughs> Our way is more effective. Yeah. I like that um, Iron Grun and Blood Ox think of themselves as linguistic and strategic geniuses. Yes, <laughs> like exactly. Keep laughing at the joke about, you know, we'll take care of him sharply and oh, what rich language. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what wit. <laughs> Yours is a towering intellect. <laughs> yes, yes, a cunning plan, Captain. <laughs> Which is one of those lovely Robert Holmes double acts. But um, the problem is you don't notice how much of a double act it is simply because those characters get such short shrift compared to what Holmes will do in later scripts. I do love the fact that he has the doctor describe Time Lords as galactic ticket inspectors. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Literal time cop. Metaphorical? No, no, no. Issue you a citation. Right. <laughs> and then I just have, there's there are two instances where the doctor talks about famous historical figures teaching him. So we have William Tell and Rembrandt teaching, you know, <laughs> teaching him how to shoot and Rembrandt teaching him how to paint. He gets yeah. a lot of tutorials, doesn't he? Yeah, he really does. He certainly does. <laughs> he only mentions Rembrandt on screen, though. He doesn't mention William Tell. Well, I can't remember. Maybe he does mention Yeah, he him. does. He, no, no, no. I mean on screen, on, in the uh, televised version. He doesn't do it on screen. I think. This is the thing. Even though I watched this last night with a friend of mine on Zoom, <laughs> this is how much I can't stand the story. My brain is like Teflon when it comes to the story because I really have trouble remembering even the slightest things. And I'm sure that I will forget it as soon as we're done talking about it because we've got Sarah now and that's all we needed. So, yeah. <laughs> Just slipped uh, in, slithered on in on the Teflon, the very smooth <laughs> surface. Right. Slipped on into the TARDIS, slipped on out in this Anything... potato-filled medieval Britain. <laughs> right. Anything else? Um, polka time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that just made me laugh. And then just uh, right at the end, there's a little back and forth between the between Lynx and the Doctor. I do not need them much longer. I owe these primitives nothing. My concern is should we join the glorious struggle for supremacy we t- Santarans deserve? That's an old, familiar tune, Lynx. There's no such thing as a super race. Your time or philosophy is egalitarian twaddle. It is your weak spot. <laughs> yes. And, well. Contrast between what, <laughs> well, what, how does Lynx approach humanity and how does the doctor approach humanity when what they have in common is 
I, I guess it's unclear whether or not Lynx has superior intelligence. He certainly has superior collective knowledge yeah. well, or accumulated knowledge. Then the doctor tries to help him save the humans and Lynx just wants to enslave them and get on his way and any consequences to them thereafter are not his concern. Right. They actually are something of a match for each other. That's the uh, worrying thing because, sure, we've got Daleks, we've got Cybermen. Those are obvious threats. Santarans are threats of a very different nature because while they have the technological superiority, it's a good thing that they have this endless war with the Rutans because if they didn't, the rest of the galaxy probably would be in some serious trouble. And in fact, later on, kind of does get in some serious trouble because of them. But there you go. And just one last thing, speaking of humanity, why are you staying here? Why don't you just clear off to somewhere safer? Because I've got a job to do, Sarah, one that affects the future of all your species. My species? You're talking as if you weren't human. The doctor tied another bat. Ah, well, yes. The definition of humanity is a very complex question. Yeah, and that's exactly the way that exchange goes on screen, too. In fact, Pertwee has one of those lovely character scenes with her. And it's also the most fun-loving we've seen the third Doctor be in a very long time. So I will say that, even though I can't stand the story. Pertwee is a delight in it. One last insult to Hal is written here. Um, (laughs) The other characters have to be uh, hypnotized with Lynx's device in order to give up information, and Hal just starts singing like a canary (laughs) as soon as he's captured. So who's in you? Oh, Lady Helen, we're told me to do it. I was going to totally kill him. Anything else you want to know? (laughs) Probably to avoid the very thing. Oh, God. Yeah, that's true. So, on to Goodreads. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and simply want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you have a question about it, read the book, write a comment or review in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it and you'll get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is a fairly reasonable, if not even high, 3.57. Daniel Kukwa, who we haven't read a review from in a while, gives it four stars and says, The best of both worlds. This is actually a collaboration. Original screenplay writer uh, Robert Holmes writes the evocative and absorbing prologue of the book, and Terrence Dick seamlessly follows up with his own inimitable style. The end result is two contributors to the greatness of the televised John Pertwee era, combining to extend that greatness to the Pertwee era novelizations. We should all be thankful that Robert Holmes finally overcame his writer's block for prose and eventually contributed the two doctors to the target range. The opening pages of The Time Warrior are a pointer to that later greatness. It's going to be a while before we get to the two doctors, but it is, uh, it's an interesting book and story. T.E. Hodden gave it three stars. As much as I love Sarah Jane Smith joining the cast and her dynamic with the Doctor feeling very different from Joe Grant's almost instantly, this is a pretty forgettable novelization of an otherwise forgettable story. The prologue with its alien space vessel and a dogfight was exciting and far better than would ever be achievable on screen, but... The aliens seemed a bit bland, the time travel seemed like an excuse to stretch the story for a few more episodes, rather than the driving dynamic of the story, and the plot just felt like the usual runaround and chases back and forth, redeemed largely by the Doctor and Sarah Jane having a few good moments. 
And finally, Michael also gives it three stars and says, after a couple of paragraphs of praise for the book, The Time Warrior is probably the best story of season 11, but is probably the second best target novel from that season. I'd argue that Hulk's Invasion of the Dinosaurs is better. So would I. Dix does his best to translate the story to the printed page, but it's hard to capture the sheer delight of the Holmes double acts on the printed page, especially Iron Gron. There aren't many embellishments beyond the Holmes prologue, but the story is strong enough as broadcast that it doesn't really need that many, so they seem to like the story. Well, that's fine. So, Allison, what do you get this out of five stars? I'm going to go with two. Um, I really enjoy the prologue, also partly because it's actually pretty difficult to write a spaceship fight that's both engaging and very easy to follow. And then I think I did a great job of establishing and developing a character and then that entirely stopped. So I was really excited about it in the beginning. And then towards the end, it was it was perfectly fine and pleasant, but it didn't it didn't live up to that early promise. So we got Sarah Jane. We had a pleasant journey in between. We had some good humor in there, but it wasn't it seemed like it might be something more elevated that it didn't turn out to be. It turned out to be just kind of run of the mill decks by the end. Okay. Dalton. I'll just say three point five. I'll go in, in the middle somewhere. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed this much more than it sounds like you did. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly, I felt like there were some really great character moments. Even though there was some back and forth, it changed enough that it didn't feel... Like some of the other stories we've read, it's literally they're doing the exact same thing every time they come back to certain settings. But Mm -hmm. there was enough character interaction, enough saving of different characters going on yeah the historical parts of it felt engaging and real and i i just i i enjoyed it it's not the best thing we've ever read but good enough so i'd say 3.5 okay oh, and... not the best thing we've read but good enough yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> it'll do which for me puts it around 2.75 i was originally going to go 2.5 or even low as two but then i remember that prologue which really is one of the finest pits of Doctor Who fiction ever written. And unfortunately, it's a prologue to this story <laughs> because it really is a marriage of styles, as Daniel Kuklis said. The unfortunate thing is, this is not so much early Terrence Sticks as it is middle Terrence Sticks. He's starting to get to the point where. The it's middle Dick's ages. Middle Dick's ages, yes, exactly. Very good. That it's not so much that he's still investing the same amount of energy in it that he used to. He always does, obviously, even in his worst novelizations, he's investing something. But he's not quite as invested in this one because he did have a lot of hand in editing down the original story to something a little more handleable for its director, as it turned out. And here, it's true, he's not really doing that much embellishing. The embellishments he does do, such as giving Sarah a proper first TARDIS scene, which is essential for any companion, and he he does that. He gives us that. But the rest of it is a little too close to the televised version, which I didn't much care for anyway. So, 2.75. Alright, so, thank you guys. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, against my better judgment, we're doing the story that is actually the next one in story order, 
though it was produced some 20 years later in our first installment of something I'm going to call Technically Target, because it is a novelization. In fact, it's considered the last official Target novelization, even though it was under a different imprint. But yeah, we're going to do that before we get on to... <laughs> Malcolm Hulk and his last story. So join us, won't you, on May 31st as we discuss Barry Lett's novelization of his own radio drama, The Paradise of Death. <sighs> in the meantime, Man. yeah. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Our new theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash Y32B8F55 along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.